Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, and today with us, we have Greg Moore for the Arizona Republic, who covers the Cardinals. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm a columnist, though, so I cover a lot more than the Cardinals. Mm, absolutely. Columnist, covers all sorts of stuff. Really excited to have him on. Greg, as always, we're just going to get started with um, kind of your journey through sports media. So why don't you share with us the kind of when you realize that being in media and being a journalist is what you wanted to do to where you are now as a columnist for the Arizona Republic. Oh, sure, man. It's one of those things where um, you don't really know it in the, in the moment all the time. It's more like the dots connect when you look back. And uh, I'm stealing that, of course, from the, the famous Steve Jobs uh, commencement address. I believe he gave it at Stanford University just, just shortly before he died. But he said that all the dots of your life connect looking back. So if you look at my journey, mm-hmm. my, some of my earliest memories are of reading the Detroit Free Press at my grandparents' house or at my parents' house. Some of my earliest, earliest memories are of just writing stories and having teachers tell me, hey, you're a good writer. And, you know, you get that encouragement and it kind of leads you in that direction. And then as you kind of go along, well, I played college football. I played at Wayne State University and I was terrible. I was, (laughs) I like to joke, I like to say that I was the worst college football player in the nation. I played on a team that once went winless. And on that team, I was like a fourth year scout teamer, right? Like I couldn't crack the lineup on a winless team. (laughs) (laughs) so I knew for a fact that I wasn't going to earn any money playing football, but looking back on it, I learned quite a bit about football. Like I can be sitting in the press box at an Arizona state football game or an Arizona Cardinals football game or at a Fiesta bowl. And I can just take one look at the secondary and I can say, it's most likely that they're in quarters. It's most likely that they're in cover three. I can see when a receiver doesn't make a correct conversion because he's facing man coverage. I don't even need to know what the play was called to know what most likely happened, and then that puts me in a better position to ask questions post-game. So, again, that was just another one of those moments. Uh, And, you know, there was this time uh, I dropped out of school, uh, was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Yep. And – it was 9-11, and I was getting ready for work, and I saw on TV the building fall mm. and later saw the second building. And I'm like, well, what's, what's going on? I get to work, and I'm afraid, right? As much of the nation was at the time, I'm worried that, that they're going to institute a draft and snatch me up and send me right into the military. I'm worried that our country's going to go to war. I'm worried that my uncle was in one of those towers when it went down. I'm I'm just more questions than answers and nuclear fallout and, you know, all of those things that come when you're afraid and you're not sure what's happening. All of that stuff was hitting me. And when I get to work, my boss is urging me to make sales calls. Hey, man, come on, make these phone calls. Yes, yeah. And there was nothing wrong with what he was telling me. He was doing his job mm-hmm. and his job was an honorable job. It was a legal job. There was nothing uh, that anybody could say negative about the work that he was doing. 
but I wanted something different for myself. And I kind of recognized it in that moment. Mm-hmm. And the next semester I went back to school. I took a class here, a class there. And before long, uh, I was in position to graduate. Um, I was close enough to a journalism degree at that point. I, like I said, had been told that I was a pretty decent writer and sort of was going that direction. But mm-hmm. yeah, man, there are all sorts of these different little moments that, you know, when you look back at them, you just sort of say to yourself, yeah, you know, this, this is kind of why uh, I went this direction. And, and final piece of it, as far as sports are concerned, I've always loved sports because everybody in my family loves sports. Yeah. My grandmother, my grandmother was the world's biggest Kentucky basketball fan. Now you might hear that and think that, you know, she had all kinds of blue all over the house and whatever, but that wasn't the case. She just never missed a game. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I had an uncle who had like this amazing didactic memory and he could just give you every statistic of everything and every game. And there were always books all over the house. And so tagging behind my father and tagging behind my uncle and being around my grandparents and being around other family members, I found it as a way to fit in. If I knew sports, I could be accepted. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of these things kind of mix around in a pot and kind of put me in the position where I'm at now. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, I think that's a very similar journey, although put in a different way than most of the people I've talked to. And I think especially the, connecting the dots moment. It's for a lot of people, it's not this sudden realization. You wake up and you're like, you know what? I want to write about sports for a living. It's sort of a slow <laughs> of all of your life events sort of leading up to this one thing that you can't really appreciate until you look back on it like you just did. Yeah, yeah. So you ended up graduating with the journalism degree, right? Correct. Correct. And then where did you go from there? Oh, my goodness. Where didn't I go? <laughs> uh, I had an internship um, with the Charlotte Observer. I had a job in Columbus, Georgia. I had a job in Kansas City, Missouri. I had a job in Phoenix. I've been all over the place. For sure. And then did you start off covering sports or did you start off? I know that you covered politics for a long time. Was that your original area or did you go to sports first? No, so man, when I when I first entered uh, in the journalism, it was one of those times where things were kind of topsy turvy, and you'll hear that a lot, I guess, when you talk to people in our industry. Mm-hmm. And I had a mentor say to me, "You know, you got to be able to do a little bit of everything." And I was encouraged to uh, try out for um, this. I don't know what you call it fellowship, scholarship, I don't know what it was. It was called the Dow Jones Newspaper Fund. Uh, The Dow Jones Newspaper Fund gives you this editing test. And it was all over the place. And it's not the kind of test you really can quote unquote study for. Mm -hmm. It's like, who are the Supreme Court justices? And, uh, you know, name all 50 states. And, you know, just, just all of these random things that you might know if you're covering the news. Yeah. If you're paying attention to it, but not a, a test you can really bone up for. And within that, there was an AP style test. So, you know, is it okay, okay, or okay? Is it there, there, or there? Is it affect or effect? I mean, just all of these, you know. And so it, I, I did 
pretty well on that test. And then that put me in position for, uh, you know, copy editing. And so copy editing, I ended up doing sports and I ended up doing news. But then I also would cover sports. So I would go out and I would cover uh, Columbus State University or I would cover the Columbus River Dragons, the old G League, uh, NBA G League team down there. Um, I mean, honestly, it was it was just everything. I don't know what the classification on my job title was. It probably said copy editor, mm. but I had A1 bylines. I was covering sports. I was here. I was there. I was everywhere. Um, and then when I went to Kansas City, I was on the desk on news side. Then I was on the desk in sports. And then that's when I ended up getting a column in Kansas City mm. and ended up writing about sports and popular culture. And really, that was just because I saw something that wasn't there. So I'm up there in the sports department and things would happen like an athlete would release some terrible rap album and, and it would just need to be ripped. Right. Like it would just it would completely need Must to be ripped. Be like we're not talking like Dame Lillard stuff here. We're not talking about Shaq. We're talking about like really bad, you know, like <laughs> you you shouldn't be doing. Leave and I, I used to make it. <laughs> Man, so I would just go out of my way to to find spaces where sport and popular culture were coming together, mm-hmm. and I would try to reflect the informal conversations that my friends and I were having about these moments. And I would just try to give that to the newspaper. And it would, it would be like a once a week thing. So I'd be kind of all week long grabbing a tidbit here, or grabbing a tidbit there. And I would compile these tidbits from wire services and then make like some funny, witty comment, allegedly funny or witty. And then occasionally I would do, you know, like an actual column. But that was a once a week thing for God only knows how long. And then that grew into writing an NBA column, which was a pro-con NBA column we had you know, enough space back then in the paper to where we had enough room for an NBA page on the weekend. So a colleague, David Boyce, and I, we would kind of argue out the NBA's topic of the week uh, around all the NBA coverage. And that that was just a lot of fun. So, you know, for me, man, it's just, it's always been about versatility. It's always been about flexibility. And it's always been about figuring out what are the goals of the job and then being able to find out the best way to do that job and hit it at the highest level that, that I was capable of hitting. And if I wasn't capable of hitting a level that I was satisfied with to then go out and add enough skills to where I could come back and bring it uh, in, in a way that, that made me feel like I had something worthy of contributing. Absolutely. It's an inspirational way to look at it for sure. And one thing that I found interesting. So you've been switching back and forth between sports and news a lot at that point in your career and writing about sports and news, the same journalistic tenets obviously apply. Right. But the tone that you write about this kind of stuff is different because sports is sports. Sports is kind of supposed to be fun, you know, and the news is sometimes fun, but most times it adopts a more, you want to strike a more serious tone with it, obviously. So when you were kind of jumping back and forth between covering sports and covering news, did you, have any trouble sort of making that switch? Mm, I mean, so there's always moments where you look back and go, ah, I wish I would have done this differently or I wish I would have done that differently. That that always exists, right? Um, before I answer this, I want to veer way off topic okay. and I want to talk about a guy I used to work with 
before we started the, the conversation, before you started recording, I'd asked you, you know, kind of who your audience was. And you mentioned that potentially younger people who are looking to find uh, their way into the industry might mm -hmm. hear this. And that got me to thinking about one of the most important things uh, that, 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 that helped me develop. And that was sitting behind a guy named Larry. Larry had been at the newspaper. He had been at that paper longer than I had been a lot. And that guy knew and had seen everything. Yep. And Larry used to cuss. <laughs> <laughs> and I would sit, we, we kind of sat back to back. And Larry had his, his monitor was pretty big and his text was, was big enough that where if I just kind of glanced over, I could see what was on his screen. So anyway, Larry would cuss every time he found something wrong in some copy he was editing to yeah. put into the paper. Okay. It was just this grumbly, gravelly, rough, <laughs> under his breath kind of, if you used to read the comic strips in the newspaper, you'll know when a character was cussing because there would be all these, you know, asterisks and exclamation marks and like all of these random uh, types that, that didn't equal a word, but you knew exactly what it was. Well, that was the sound that came out of Larry's mouth. And so I would look and see whatever mistake he was fixing, and I would then just remember to not let that mistake show up in my, <laughs> my copy. <laughs> so not only was I, I, uh, I was, I was, you know, I had been formally trained, right? I went to, went to Wayne State, yep. Dow Jones Newspaper Fund, you know, I, I knew this stuff. But then I would figure out what Larry was identifying. And then furthermore, these guys, they were, they were super smart, right? And they would talk around me in a way that I took to be as insulting, right? Whether it was insulting or not, I'll never know. But mm -hmm. there'd be one guy uh, who was a reporter, and he had reported on everything in the state of Georgia, and he had seen it all, heard it all, done it all, been through it all. And he would start to talk about the stuff he had written to Larry, to this other guy named Jerry, to a guy named Chuck, to a guy named Rich, they would talk at like this really highfalutin level about the English language, using all this vocabulary that you maybe encountered in an English class, but you kind of just learned it enough to kind of get away with it and move on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, participles and modifiers and this stuff, and I couldn't speak that language, right? I, I didn't know how to do it. And I, I took it personally. It's kind of funny in, in, in some ways, it was almost like an athlete. It was almost like bulletin board material. I took it personally that they yep. were trying to put me down. Whether they were or weren't, I, I, probably not. They were probably just <laughs> talking about the story. But in response, I went to Toys R Us, and I, back when there was a such thing called Toys R Us, and I bought a DVD uh, back when it was something <laughs> called the DVD. Date yourself. Oh, <laughs> right, it's terrible, right? I bought a Schoolhouse Rock DVD, and I bought a couple of uh, workbooks that were like seventh and eighth and ninth grade English workbooks. Mm. And I would watch these Schoolhouse Rock DVDs, and I would do these workbooks. And my wife and I, we were always driving all the time back then. We would drive into Atlanta or we'd drive to Savannah or we'd drive to Michigan. We were just driving. Yep. And she would have the AP style book or like the elements of style or like working with words. She would have those on her lap 
and she'd be quizzing me while I drove. And it just, it was just like my pursuit of, of quality, right? Like I just wanted to be good enough. I just wanted to, to make my, uh, to, to justify my presence in that newsroom. I can do this work. I'm good enough to be here. And um, so I, I just wanted to diverge a little bit mm. and tell those two stories as, you know, pieces of my early career uh, that were super important. Now, what you asked me was, have I ever had a difficulty in finding my voice uh, as I move between news to sports, sports to news? And the answer is, is overarchingly no, mm-hmm. because what, what can happen is if you can write in a really, really easygoing, straightforward manner, that translates in any kind of coverage that you do, no matter what, a clean, easy to understand sentence is a clean, easy to understand sentence. Typically, when you're trying to be flip or trying to be funny, that's when it, it kind of veers off into a direction that, that you don't want it to go. Yeah. Also, I will say that in news, you have to be able to do everything that you can do on a news desk you have to be able to do on a sports desk. Unfortunately, in the sports world, people get arrested. Unfortunately, in the sports world, people die. And so the same skills that you would have writing a crime story or writing an obituary, you would bring those over to the news side. Um, the, the, the similarities are endless. A business story, I mean, how many times do we think about contracts or how much money a team's bringing in or how much money a team stands to lose because of COVID-19 or whatever have you. So I I really feel like uh, working in news is tremendous training uh, for working in sports and working in sports. If you're interested in it can have a great impact going back the other direction. If you're interested in it, you'll say, Oh, wow, here's, here's some numbers that I otherwise wouldn't have crunched. And now you're better prepared to encounter a business story or you'll, you'll read about uh, an arrest or a death or something like that. And then when you encounter it in a news story, it's less intimidating. So finally, to answer the question, I think that if you can write a good, clean sentence, you'll never have an issue uh, finding your tone. Absolutely. That's uh, a good way to look at it for sure. That is, uh, yeah, that's, Larry, that's a great story right there. But (laughs) you've been telling me, you you know, you've been talking a lot about these experiences and you, as you said, you have been all over the place. So, and as we were talking about before, sort of you have the benefit of hindsight now after all these years in this industry. When you're looking back on all these different stops that you made over the course of your career, it would be difficult to ask you which you think is most important, but kind of looking at it like, if there was a single experience that you feel you could absolutely not do without or not be the journalist that you are today without it, what would that be what, uh, out of all those spot, uh, stops? Oh, I, I like to think about my time at the Kansas City Star a lot um, for a lot of different reasons. But I think um, at the Kansas City Star in the sports department, I worked with a lot of people that, uh, are prominent today. Um, Jason Whitlock was there. Joe Posnanski was there. Wright Thompson was there. Liz Merrill was there. Michelle Vogel was there. Candace Buckner was there. Uh, Therese Paler was there. 
Kent Babb was there, Sam Melliger was there, and I'm certain I'm forgetting some people, but it was just such a talented group of people. I mean, just such a talented group. And I didn't have like super close personal relationships with every last person I just mentioned, yep. um, but I was around them and I read their work every day. Their work came in. I read it. And sometimes I would even catch a comma and say, ha, this is, <laughs> this is an independent <laughs> clause after a conjunction and I need to put a comma. Right <laughs> Boys, our husband's taught you that. And then also, right, yeah, that was that was all schoolhouse rock, which we can we can just YouTube it now. But <laughs> I, I think the other the other thing is that I had to write headlines for all these guys. Um, and so that means you have to distill this big long story into one concise message. And I had a mentor early on say to me, he loved being a copy editor because he loved writing headlines because that was the only part of a story that people would read. And that always just stuck with me. It always made me laugh. And that's uh, and now that I, you know, well, now that I write, you know, I, I hope to God people re read the story, but whatever. But that was like, you're, you're making it concise. And then and in that same job, I would have to design the page and put the story on the page. So I'd have to figure out what photo best told the story. Mm -hmm. I would have to figure out, uh, should we uh, refer back to the website? Because there's a video with it. And all of a sudden, it's like it becomes multimedia training. And again, in that job, I also was writing a couple of columns that I feel, you know, were, were a lot of fun. I just enjoyed writing those columns, and it was just good training. But I will say also that my time at the Associated Press, uh, on the news desk at the Associated Press, where, again, I was editing other people's copy. This wasn't even me writing my own stuff. This was me editing other people's stuff. But there would just be story after story that you had to just read, edit, get it out there, read, edit, get it out there. Yo, this needs to be elevated. This story is missing a piece. Did we call this lawyer on this story? Did we get the proper context in here? Is this thing too long? Can we bring this back to 500 words instead of 750? Is this, is the lead buried? And it was just, it was like a lot of work, a lot of work. But it was fun work. I was working around good, smart people and I was learning a lot. So I think if, if you can find yourself early enough in your career in a job where you've got to do a lot of things fast, that can help you trust your decision making. Now, there's a line, of course, where it's like, yo, that's too much. Nobody can do that much. They're, they're asking too much of you. That line clearly and obviously exists, and we should have good mentors and good editors and people up the chain from us who can help make sure that we're not – putting ourselves in those kinds of positions uh, unwittingly. Mm. But at the same time, I'm telling you, man, early on, if you can just go day in, day out, day in, day out, three, four stories a day, uh, editing, uh, maybe writing a story every day or writing two stories in one day and still trying to juggle some enterprise, it's a lot. And, and we know it's a lot. And we don't want to promote burn, burnout. We don't. But that can help you figure out what's important to you I love these kinds of stories. These kinds of stories don't interest me at all. They yeah. can solidify your news judgment, and they can teach you about all these different styles of writing. If you remember all those writers that I mentioned before, I mean, I was reading all of their stuff, and I got to learn 
the different ways into a story and the different ways to tell a story and how to make sure the nut graph is always there and how to make sure that the nut graph is always followed by the context graph and that the context graph is always followed by like the counter indications, you know, the counter arguments and then how to make sure that you've got the right quote up top and then that ties the whole story together down at the bottom. All of that stuff comes from being in, in jobs that kind of kind of had a nice, nice rapid pace to them. For sure. I mean, knowing all that, the little stuff that you just kind of rattled off like that, you don't can't really understand what that's like until you get in the thick of it. And as you said, when you're writing for something as sort of widespread as the Associated Press, you know, you figure out what you like and what you don't like. And it's just an obviously important experience, but difficult, obviously, to find their way in there. Yeah, yeah. fun, fun stuff, though, fun stuff. So after all of this, how did you end up in Arizona uh, with, as a columnist? Oh, yeah, well, um, the short version of it is that uh, my wife and I started a family in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. uh, and then her mother got ill and passed away really unexpectedly. And I was working nights and my wife was working days and we weren't seeing each other. And life didn't really look like the kind of life that we'd envisioned for ourselves. Yeah. And there was an opportunity with the Associated Press where I'd earn maybe enough money to support the both of us if we stretched it out right. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we did. You know, AP AP was paying pretty well. It, it wasn't really enough to to raise a family of four, like, but it was fine, right? Like we had a house that we rented in the suburbs. We had one car that we shared. We didn't have cable. We didn't eat a lot of fancy food, uh, you know, at restaurants and stuff. We didn't go out a lot. But it was cool, man, because we had each other and we had the boys. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and what I would do in those days is I would watch uh, ESPN online. They didn't have a bunch of live sports online. Like, you couldn't get the NBA for free. Uh, you couldn't get uh, the NFL for free. But you could get Friday night fights. You could watch that for free. Yeah. Uh, online and I would plug my computer into my TV with this big long HDMI cord and then there was this other cord that you had to plug in for audio and I would watch Friday Night Fight and I always liked boxing and uh, would always read about boxing and then I found this you know old boxing books uh, and old sports writers and stuff that they had written and so I'd watch these Friday Night Fights and then I would just write about the fight, like as if I was on deadline. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this one like as if I'm Norm Mailer uh, in the fight. And this one, I'm going to do like I'm Dan Raphael at ESPN. And this one I'm going to do. And I would like write in all of these different like styles. Like uh, this one, I'm going to be George Plimpton. I'm going to write about everything except the fight. You know, it, it, yeah. and that, uh, man, that was looking back on it. Those were some fond memories. And I always wanted to be a columnist, but I just kind of didn't really tell people about it because I can remember uh, like right before I would graduate, I would go visit newsrooms in neighboring states. So I remember there was an experience I had and it was like in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I was telling somebody who had asked me, you know, what do you want to do in this business? So well, I'd like to eventually be a columnist. And the guy was kind of affronted, like, he, he, you know, like, who do I think I am? saying I want to be a columnist and I'm only 22 years old or however old I was at the time. And I remember just this energy, this energy exchange from that conversation where that guy was really off put by me saying that I wanted to be a columnist. 
And I remember feeling that feeling a time or two else. And so I put that dream somewhere where I didn't tell people about it. I said, well, I still want to be a columnist, but I'm just not going to bring it up because in my mind, I wanted to be a columnist 20 years from the moment that I was saying it, you know, when I had something to say. Not realizing that, you know, within 12 months of that moment, I actually had a column uh, in Columbus where I was writing about uh, hip hop culture in, in Columbus, Georgia, of all places. But it was like right up the street from Atlanta, which was the cultural capital of black America at the time. Mm. You know, I, so anyway, I took a job at the Associated Press in Phoenix so that my wife and I didn't have to both work and that we could, you know, be together and help raise the kids and all that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it, it worked out. And then there was this opportunity, right? Somebody was like, yo, they're looking for a, a columnist at the, um, at the Arizona Republic. And I thought, man, there ain't no way in the world they're going to hire me for this. <laughs> but then I thought, you know what, dude, go for it, right? Like if you get the job, like, they'll never hire you, right? Like, it's never going to happen. I don't care, right? Like, lightning could strike and it's not going to happen. But if you don't try out, right, like, if you don't put your application, if you don't put your hat in the ring, you'll always regret it. You'll always wonder what if, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably, I don't know, mid-30s, late-30s, somewhere in there. It's not that long ago. Um, and I just figured we're just going to go for it. And... I got to a stage where they gave me a tryout. They said, okay, well, we're going to try you out for the job uh, for, I don't know, whatever it was, three days or whatever. Liam, I unloaded. I unloaded. (laughs) I I watched ESPN, right? And everything that Stephen A. Smith said, I was responding to it. Like, bam, he's right about this. He's wrong about that. If, uh, If it came up on PTI, I was responding to it. And I'm emailing my editor, uh, all of the stuff that I'm writing because they, they had this idea that um, they just wanted to see how I'd handle it. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, we can do these in quick hitters, right? Like I've got all this experience writing stuff super fast on deadline. So I'm sending like, you know, four and five stories, you know, uh, that are maybe two, 300 words. And then there'd be one that was a little longer. And then one would just be like all off the internet. Like I would just say, okay, well, they're talking about Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao, and whether they'll fight. So I'm just going to scrape through their Twitter accounts and grab tweets that are relevant and say, here's how we can interpret these tweets to say that this fight's going to happen. And now I'm just scraping Twitter, and I'm putting all that in there. Uh, and then they, you know, they, they, they gave me the opportunity to cover a couple games. I covered a Suns game. I covered a Diamondbacks game. I wrote columns off the game uh, that I covered. And it worked out, man. It worked out. I, I I got the job, and so here we are. Here we are. That is, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you throw your hat in the ring, the worst they can do is say no, right? The worst they, man, listen, you remind me of a guy I knew on the west side of Detroit. I went to school <laughs> off Seven Mile in Greenfield. Um, <laughs> and there was this one guy, Mike. Mike was cool as anything, man. Mike was Mike was the coolest guy I've ever known. Uh, and he was maybe, you know, a little bit older, but whatever. He was a classmate. And it was right before the dance, the eighth grade dance. And they were talking to me about, I was really awkward, dude. I was, God, <laughs> man, my dad would cut my, my dad would cut my hair in the kitchen and the braces hadn't taken hold yet. You know, like I was just the most awkward guy. And I hit a growth spurt 
late. And I was a year younger than all my classmates on top of all that. Like I was just an awkward little guy. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to ask this girl out uh, to the eighth grade dance. And my boy Mike was like, Shh, worst thing she could do is say no. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that story in so long. <laughs> well, did, did she say now? Yeah, no, it worked out. It worked out. Uh, okay. I called her. I, I got her. I got her phone number, and I called her, and I said, "Listen, if we go to the dance together, it only, <laughs> it was something like it was something like it was two dollars a person uh, if you went by yourself, but if you went with a date, it was three dollars for you together." And, uh, and I had a buddy of mine on the phone. Like for moral support, so the two of us called her on what what you call three way calling back then, and I asked her if she would go to the dance with me because if we did, we could get in at a cheaper rate. <laughs> <laughs> You're working those angles early. Oh my goodness! And then she said yes, and then she still showed up an hour before I did anyway. I don't think I even danced with you. Actually, I did. I did dance. With you. <laughs> Not in for a I haven't thought about that story in so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad I could glad I could remind you of that pleasant memory. Oh, great! Yeah, oh, that's good stuff. Buck fifty to get in, easy money. Good sell, good sell, great sell, Greg. That's a great sell. <laughs> we'll save a buck. Yeah, <laughs> great stuff. All right. Well, now you know. As you said, here we are. Your columnist for the Arizona Republic, writing about all sorts of things. The Cardinals, right now, Arizona Cardinals are talk of the town with football being the only sport that we can really look forward to, although it seems like the uh, other sports are inching closer to coming back. But yeah. the draft was a couple of weeks ago now, and the Cardinals ended up getting, from many perspectives, pretty lucky with Isaiah Simmons dropping all the way down to their slot. Um, in, the media, in the media since that draft, Cliff Kingsbury and the coaching staff has been kind of cautious as far as saying what role Simmons is going to play because he's so multifaceted, multifaceted and you know, can play all sorts of stuff. They said they're really only going to have him be learning one position to start off. How do you see them using him primarily his rookie season? Is he going to be more of a linebacker? Is he going to be secondary? Are they really going to keep him into like a little bit more of a strict definition? So if I'm Vance Joseph, I'm putting my best 11 on the field. And that means that Isaiah Simmons is going to walk out and cover a tight end. And we know that the Arizona Cardinals had a terrible time covering tight ends last season. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to walk out and cover a tight end. If that means that, uh-oh, we're playing a team that spreads the field out and they just put their linebacker or their running back in motion, the running back is now in the slot, I'm going to trust Isaiah to be able to step out and cover that position as well. I don't really care where you line him up. I don't really care how you identify or design his position. I would say you put your best 11 athletes on the field and then you figure out the best ways that you can put pressure uh, on, on the offense. <clears throat> and so with Isaiah Simmons' skill set, and I mean, look, who knows how it's going to work out, right? I mean, how many times have we seen draft picks don't work out the way that you expect and you don't want to put too much expectation on a young player? But I've been around Isaiah a little bit at the Fiesta Bowl. I talked to him. He really impressed me uh, in, in, the, in the media interviews that day. Uh, he has impressed me with his play when I watch his film. 
he impressed me when he uh, was on the Cardinals Zoom when they did the, the, the introductory media interview. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying that I'm in the tank for this guy. I believe that this guy is likely to be a very successful football player in the NFL. I don't see uh, a likelihood that this guy's going to bust out and wash out. And if I can pause for a minute and talk about connecting the dots, when I was at the Kansas City Star, we used to cover Johnson County football, Johnson County, Kansas, and Isaiah Simmons played at Olathe North. And the night he was drafted, I got on the phone with his high school coach. <laughs> I know that Isaiah's older brother played at Kansas, where he was a flexible, versatile defender who played a similar role. And furthermore, the single most famous graduate of Olathe North football program is Darren Sproul, who also was a flexible, versatile guy. So what I'm saying is that Isaiah Simmons, if you plug him in, and you just let him know and understand the defense, he's a very smart guy. He'll understand where the linemen fit in and where the gaps are that he's going to need to plug, which has been a real problem for Arizona's defense the last couple of years. If he has to step out in a pass coverage, he's going to understand where the safety help is behind him. He's going to understand what the corners are doing outside of him, and he'll know how to minimize the risk of a wide receiver or running back getting loose. I don't want to see this guy walking out and try to play man coverage on some of the top receivers in football. We don't want that. But we do know that the guy will be able to come off the edge and surprise you. He'll be able to trap in the coverage and do an adequate job, and he'll be able to get up there and stop the run in a way to get that defense off the field. If you just keep your best 11 out there, and find yourself in a position where the defense can dictate to the offense a little bit. That's how I view him. That's a good way to view it. And yeah, like you said, he's an absolute stud. I mean, you brought up Darren Sproles. They're both very versatile, multifaceted guys, but the uh, the body types couldn't be more different there. Simmons is like a freaking Greek yeah, god. Right? <laughs> Yeah, like you said, you know, he's smart, mature, uh, captain to Clemson, all that good stuff. So he should be. I think it probably is, you know, it makes sense that the media fodder they're feeding us is kind of like we're going to take it one step at a time. First, he'll learn linebacker, then secondary, whatever. Don't want to overwhelm them too much. But all the guys got to do is sit indoors and study for the next four months. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's that cliche about the difference between college football and pro football is in, in the pros? They can have you all day, right? In college, you've only got X number of hours that you're allowed to spend with the coaches, and you've got actual classes that you have to attend. In the NFL, it's just the NFL. And again, man, I've talked to Isaiah Simmons. He he said to me uh, that by being versatile and playing a bunch of different positions, he understood how the defense ought to work. And I'm telling you, man, that is an invaluable skill. That will put your, put you in position to to use your athleticism in a way that won't be outside of the system. I think that's really the difference between uh, great defenders and defenses that, that, that get torched. Definitely. And then on the non-draft side, the biggest acquisition of the Cardinals offseason was none other than DeAndre Hopkins and what was an absolute robbery of a trade. I still don't understand how Bill O'Brien has his job, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> how do you see Hopkins is obviously he's an absolute stud, probably a top five receiver. How do you see him fitting into Cliff Kingsbury's offense there? Do you think we're going to see another uh, triple-digit reception season from Hub? Top five? How is he not number one? Are you kidding me? Top five? Listen, 
I'm I'm like, listen, as soon as they announced the trade, the second they announced the trade, I jotted down 100 catches, 1,000 yards, 10 touchdowns, right? Like, that's <laughs> what this guy does. <laughs> I think, I think, and, 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 and here's what, what's furthermore, right? I don't know that Houston, <clears throat> excuse me, ever had a secondary receiving threat. I'm not going to disrespect Will Fuller or Kenny Stills or even Demarius Thomas or Carlos Hyde by saying that um, DeAndre was out there alone. That's overstating it. But the year that Hopkins had uh, 96 catches and 1,300 yards and 13 touchdowns, uh, I think it was 2017, the next closest guy to him uh, was Will Fuller. And he only had like 400 and some odd yards receiving, right? And so Hopkins almost had 1,000 yards more than the next closest guy. And so you ask how a guy like that fits in, how does he not, right? So what you've got is Kyler Murray, the offensive rookie of the year, who was throwing to Larry Fitzgerald, who, you know, 17th season, he's just as consistent as ever. He knows the soft spots in the defense. He's the ultimate safety valve. And every now and then, he still can go up top. I've seen him do it. I saw him do it last season. Larry's there. We know what he's going to give us. Christian Kirk is a local guy. Uh, He's from Arizona here. He's from the Phoenix area. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me even to evaluate Christian Kirk because I'm so excited to watch him play for his hometown team. And I know what he's capable of. The guy is very explosive. He's very quick. And I feel like if Christian Kirk can just find a little bit of a way to put it together, he can be one of those people that's really surprising to folks on on the periphery, uh, folks who aren't the most diehard NFL fans. They'll say, wow, where'd that come from? But people who've known Christian Kirk for a while will say, yeah, that's about right. And then you add DeAndre Hopkins to that mix, and I just feel like there's going to be plenty of ways uh, to exploit that. The run game really picked up last year uh, when they put Kenyon Drake in there full-time. Kenyon Drake's coming back. The offensive line is coming back largely intact, although I would like to see the general manager, Steve Kine, uh, sign A.Q. Shipley, who was their starting center last season. He was one of the team leaders last season. If Shipley does not come back, they've got a promising third-year guy in Mason Cole. Mason Cole uh, never missed a snap at the University of Michigan and played as a rookie when Shipley was hurt. He's now had basically a redshirt year last year where he learned all the different line positions. He was able to get stronger. uh, And the indications are that Mason Cole probably uh, is going to be a player, and he'll be able to fit in anywhere on this line. I just happen to think that A.Q. Shipley did a great job last season. I think the intangibles he brings as a leader um, would be something that I'd be looking at. That said, I haven't taken a deep enough dive into the salary cap to know what's feasible, what's not. So long story short, I think this offense really ought to be able to carry the team. Uh, I think that the addition of Hopkins makes the, the, the Cardinals a contender for the NFC West. A contender for the NFC, that's the most difficult division in football, most would say. Yeah, yeah. So is it, though? Because I don't know, I don't know what the Rams have, right? Uh, we know that Gurley's gone. We know that Gurley was limited last season, but Gurley's gone now. Uh, they also lost a receiver. So I, I just, 
I don't know what the Rams are bringing. And can you think of a lot of times where a team got to the Super Bowl, didn't win it, and then bounced back and won it a couple years later? So I think that the Rams, given what I know about football and how teams mature, the Rams are probably closer to a rebuild than they are to contention. There's a chance that the 49ers, even though they've done some good things in the draft and we, we're, we're looking at a, a really solid core returning there, but we're looking at a Super Bowl hangover potentially for the 49ers. Yeah. That would make it Cardinals versus Seahawks. And it's always Cardinals versus Seahawks <laughs> in that locker room, right? Like those two teams, they kind of can't stand each other. And I love a good rivalry. Um, and we've also seen that this division can be kind of cannibalistic. Like you can win this division with nine wins. We've seen that happen. So I don't think it's unreasonable to call for the Cardinals to contend in the NFC West. I really don't. Now, I'm also famous. Like, I'm the guy who every single year I pick the Super Bowl as if I was 11 years old. And I pick <laughs> Raiders versus Lions to go to the Super Bowl, regardless of what their previous records were, regardless of what their offseason was, because football, NFL football, is the single most unpredictable sport, which is one of the reasons why it's so popular. You don't know who's going to be good year in and year out. There's always going to be a surprise, and there's always going to be a team that falls off. The only constant is that New England's going to be in the mix, except now Tom Brady's gone. So I'm picking Raiders, Lions, in the Super Bowl right this second, like I always do. That said, the Arizona Cardinals are a reasonable contender for the NFC West. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you put it like that, it's tough not to agree with you. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> any non-Patriots team is going to suffer the Super Bowl hangover. And I mean, even last year when the Cardinals didn't have nearly as strong as a roster as they do this year, they still gave everybody in that division a run for their money whenever they played them. I mean, they, I think a couple of the games ended up being double-digit double wins for the Seahawks and the Niners, but, I mean, they played them tough if you watched the game. Yeah, sure, sure. You just you just got to take a look and see, you know, where, where there's some opportunities for, uh, you know, for these guys to come up and surprise you. But yeah, man, I just, I really like, um, I really like what the offense did last season. I really like what the defense has added. I just, you know, and, and there's also a chance that I'm like way overly optimistic because I'm too close to it. That also is possible, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the season. I'm hoping the Lions make the Super Bowl because my dad's from Detroit and nothing would make him happier than <laughs> the Lions win a playoff game, much less get to the Super Bowl. So. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, man. Bring back Jim Caldwell. What are we doing? <laughs> exactly. Get rid of uh, the Belichick wannabe up there. Caldwell was good, even if he never changed his facial expression on the sideline, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> Literally anything could happen. He could have the same look on his face. And some people take that as a negative. I think that's a positive. I mean, the range of emotions he feels as an NFL coach during a game, I can't even imagine. And this dude is just solid as fucking stone or oops, as Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> what I like what I like about Caldwell, man, Caldwell was really he was really, in my mind, one play away uh, from winning a Super Bowl in Indianapolis. There was a guy, Hank Basket. Uh, who was like a reality TV star and was like a backup tight end, and he was playing uh, on on the um, the kick return team. And there was a onside kick that really surprised him, and he wasn't able to make the play. And that really turned the tide of that Super Bowl. And it was kind of all downhill for Caldwell from there. He ended up getting fired after uh, Peyton Manning 
he got hurt and then he missed that next season. And I think they only won like, I don't know, two or three games. He ended up getting fired and then he went up to Baltimore. And then after Baltimore, he went to Detroit. But I want to say Caldwell won like 11-7-9-9-9. You know, like 11 games, seven games, 9-9-9, and went to the playoffs twice. And listen, winning nine games and going to the playoffs in Detroit, it's like I'm surprised they don't have a statue for the guy. <laughs> that franchise is cursed and it's perpetually hapless. So yeah, man, I, I you know, I, I hope uh, I hope that that 11 year old Greg's you know predictions and wishes come true one of these days, and then I'll be able to predict something else. It's sort of like um, Chris Berman, how he used to pick uh, Buffalo and San Francisco for the Super Bowl every year, except for that was like a realistic, like a reasonable choice to make. Yeah. Me, I'm just throwing stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, football at its core is extremely unpredictable. So sometimes when you just throw stuff at the wall, it's going to stick. So I'm excited to see yeah, if, uh, sure. if it does stick. Well, yeah, no, and if you, if, you really, if you really look at it, I, and, and being, being in all seriousness, it's a protest vote, right? Like I just, I am saying effectively, we can't know. Like, I, I know you can't predict anything ever, right? Like, there's always a range of factors that can always affect the prediction that you're making. But I'm saying that in, in professional football, man, this is an exercise in futility, and I refuse to participate because that's the one thing that we don't know is who's going to the Super Bowl because there are too many factors between week one and week 18. Exactly. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, last part of the interview here, I'm just going to ask you some broader, more maybe some more fun questions to start. Uh, what is your favorite football memory? Wow. Uh, man, high-fiving my Uncle Gary after Barry Sanders spun somebody into the ground. Uh, or, or, or maybe uh, playing Tecmo Bowl with uh, Bo Jackson and Marcus Allen. That's good. Yeah, I imagine there were many high fives between you and Uncle Gary <laughs> if it was every time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, throughout your career, and I mean, I'm, I realize it's probably difficult for you to choose, but what's the first story that comes to mind when I ask you what is your favorite story that you've ever written? Um, Satchel Page. So I used to have this thing about Negro Leagues baseball uh, that I couldn't stand it because the home run record was, you know, 745, Henry Aaron. Before that, it had been 714, Babe Ruth. Mm. And then they're telling me this guy, Josh Gibson, had like 900 home runs. And I'm like, well, then who was pitching to him, right? Like, I mean, 200 more than Babe Ruth. I mean, come on, right? Like, this is ridiculous. Or they would say stuff like, cool Papa Bell was so fast that he could hit the switch and get in bed before the room got dark. And I would say to Bob Kendrick, uh, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, I said, man, come on, man, it's ridiculous. Like it diminishes their actual accomplishments when we describe them with this much hyperbole. It's like you're talking about Paul Bunyan. Nobody believes any of it when you go that far with it. And Kendrick was like, yeah, except uh, that, that story's true. What are you talking about? He was like, cool Papa Bell got in bed before the room got dark. What are you talking about? What happened? Cool Papa Bell was sharing a room with Satchel Paige on the road, and they were staying in one of these rinky-dink hotels with um, faulty wiring, which wasn't all that uncommon for the era. Yeah. So Paige went into the room first, hit the cord, or excuse me, Bell went into the room first, pulled the cord, and the light took a minute to come on. It was like, and then it came on. 
same thing happened when he left. He pulled the cord, and then it came on. Mm-hmm. So he uses that information to pull a prank on Bell, he's, or on, on, on Satchel Page. Cool Papa Bell says to Satchel Page, I'll bet you your meal money, your per diem, that I can turn this light off and get in the bed before the room gets dark. And of course, Satchel Page is like, dude, come on, man. Like, <laughs> Bell does it, and it works. Now, here's the thing, though. Satchel Page is the showman. So he tells that story for the rest of his life, like with all of the embellishments and flourishes that Satchel Page was famous for. And he gives you nothing to indicate that he's like joking around. He never mentions the faulty wiring. And every time he tells it, it embarrasses cool Papa Bell to no end. And then the, the quote kind of takes on a life of its own because Muhammad Ali ended up saying it, uh, you know, in a pre-fight thing or whatever. But without question, that's my most, that's the, the uh, story that I enjoy thinking about the most. Cause that was a, uh, it was something nobody else could have gotten, right? Like nobody else was going to get that story but me. And I was supposed to be a copy editor and I was just kind of doing this in my spare time. And I hit on something that just really meant something to me personally. And it affected the way that I think of Negro League baseball to this day. Yeah, that's a great story. Definitely the impact it had. Satchel Page was a remarkable dude. So that's a very fortunate for you to be able to get that story. Tell me about it, right? Like, you pitched when you like, 75 years old. You kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Just for all ages. Um, what's something about your job, and it could be sports journalism in particular, or it could be journalism as a whole, that you feel like other people don't know or they don't really understand? Uh, what it's like to actually get hate mail. Like, <laughs> what it's like for somebody to actually call you an idiot. And you're reading it, and you're like, oh, man, I really didn't think of that. I am an idiot. And you've got to process that, right? Like, you've got to put that somewhere. The person calling you an idiot might be right, you know, because what you'll get is you get all this advice where people say, don't worry about that, and you can't listen to these haters and trolls. Yeah, but you do, though, right? Like, you can't unhear it. You heard it. You read it. You know? This, you know? So um, for me, that's, that's a piece of it. But the other piece of it is that, there's this visceral response that comes when somebody misinterprets what you're saying. Mm. And God, man, that to me is like a trigger to no end. If I've written something and I can tell that the person didn't read what I wrote because their response indicates it, that like infuriates me. I'm like, who do you think you are to comment on this when you clearly haven't read it? I had to learn how to put that away. And I'm, I'm way better with that now, right? But at the, in the very earliest stages, that was something that was really hard uh, to, to process. Now, that's, I've learned really good coping techniques. And you really just, you can't concern yourself with everything everyone says, particularly if it's clear they haven't bothered to read what you wrote. Then you can't concern yourself with that opinion because on its face, it's an invalid opinion. Um, but the real trick is to learn how to always be interested in improving and always be interested in refining your message and being more clear and saying things in a way that people can understand with no mistakes or doubts exactly what it is you're saying. Exactly. It's very important as a journalist. And this, the last question might tie into that a little bit, but now that you've been in the industry for some time and you've been all over the place, literally and figuratively, as far as your coverage and what you're writing about, 
Is there anything that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were starting out? Yeah, that it's all going to work out. Um, I was really concerned with keeping a job. Um, I can remember what it felt like to come to work and find out that 100 people got laid off and you had no idea about any of it. And to think that here was somebody that you used to sit next to, and all of a sudden that person doesn't have a paycheck. And that person has to start over and you know this guy was just planning on buying a new lawnmower or whatever, or putting a new roof on his house or whatever. And now all of a sudden his plans are completely dashed. Uh, and to always be living in that fear that, oh my God, I could be unemployed tomorrow. Listen, man, all you can do with that is be smart with your money. Put away enough money that if something happens, you can get from point A to point B. And you have to trust yourself to say, you know what? If I got to drive an Uber for a little while until I figure out what my next step is, cool. Or if driving an Uber is my next step, I'm going to do a really good job of it. I'm going to make sure there's cold water in the car. I'm going to make sure there's little hand wipes in the car. And I'm going to make sure I try to get five-star ratings. And I'm going to go out during the hot times of day. And I'm going to analyze the uh, map and figure out exactly when to go and where. And I'm going to figure out the challenges and how to string all that together. But at no point am I going to lose trust in myself. Even if something happens where I lose my job in this industry, I'm going to be okay. My family's going to be okay because who I am as a person is going to translate to whatever I endeavor that I encounter. And I'm going to be able to make sure that everybody is stable and everybody's okay. If I would have learned how to trust that earlier, I could have eliminated a lot of stress, anxiety, and worry. Well, that's amazing advice during any time, but especially right now in the state the industry is in and the state the world is in, I think everybody can take it to heart. Yeah, you've got to do your best with the circumstances that are in front of you, and you really can't worry about the things that are beyond your control. Absolutely. Well, Greg, that'll conclude our press pass. Thank you so much for coming on and being really honest and insightful with your answers, and I think that there's a lot to take away from anybody who's listened to this, and especially young journalists. Liam, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for reaching out to me, and I'm um, going to go do some work and try to do a good job. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. <laughs> and thank you, listener, as always, for tuning into the Press Pass. This is your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.